Hello, and welcome to Northeast Christian Church's online service. We're so excited to have you with us. Make sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to our messages, follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you and enjoy the service. We're going to start our yearly focus this morning on what we call spiritual disciplines. Those are activities that are outlined in the Bible that help us grow spiritually speaking. They include things like prayer, reading the word, giving, uh, solitude and silence, sharing your faith, and serving. Those are just naming a few. One of the great temptations, I think, though, of the Christian life, or any life for that matter, is to think that we're capable of disciplining ourselves into becoming new people. Paul the Apostle tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Say asceticism. That's a word we don't use much anymore. Asceticism means denying yourself in order to discipline yourself. I won't eat the cake, I won't eat the cake, I won't eat the cake. What are you thinking about all day? The cake. You see, the Christian life is not about self-improvement, and neither are the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are not about earning your way to God. They're what it looks like to already be living with God. They're about working out the peace and the joy and the strength that have already been dispensed to you in Christ. Verse 23 in Colossians goes on to say, severity to the body is of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. There you go, you can give up on your diet already. And you know this, if you've tried a New Year's resolution, spiritual disciplines are not about earning, they're not even about doing, they're about availing yourself of something that's already been given to you. I want you to picture it this way. A plumber comes to your house and he hooks up the water to, the, to your house. It's all set, it's good to go. Um, you have a nice brand new Brita filter on it. You got a nice island kitchen sink designed by Chip and Joanna Gaines off Fixer Upper. It's your dream situation, okay? Granite countertops or whatever, whatever you want. It's all set up, you're good to go, but you don't call the plumber if the water is already hooked up. You turn on the nozzle. And in the same way, you and I have a part to play. We didn't earn it, but we employ it. That's what spiritual disciplines are. That doesn't mean that we earn God's blessing, but we strengthen the muscle that God has already given to us. Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, once said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And for many of us, there's nothing so disquieting as quietness and reflection. Don't fool yourself, by the way. Just because you like to be alone doesn't mean you like to be still. Many of us thrive when we're alone, not because we're more spiritual, but because we're selfish. We like to be alone in order to numb ourselves with books and projects, TV shows and music, or whatever your flavor happens to be. The most difficult part of the discipline of prayer is that it requires you to stop before you start. Uh, Pete Grieg, the author of the book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. By the way, this is the best book on prayer I've ever read. I would encourage you, if you want to read a book this year, this is the one. If I could recommend any book to you, this has been the most influential book in my life on prayer and is probably one of the best books I've ever read. 
So I'd encourage you to pick that up. But Pete Greig started a worldwide prayer movement, and he wrote this book, uh, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And he says this in that book. The best way to start praying is to actually stop praying, to pause, to be still, to put down your prayer list and surrender your personal agenda, to stop talking at God long enough to focus on the wonder of who he actually is. Ecclesiastes, which is my favorite book in the Old Testament, says it this way, there is a time to speak and there is a time to keep silent. Today, I want to talk with you about prayer. When it comes to prayer, listening to God before we ask God to execute our plan might be wise. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors, once said it this way, life's most basic decision is rarely whether to believe in God or not, but whether to worship or compete with him. I find that to be a temptation for myself. If, if God were really good and wise, then he would do things my way. And that's a dangerous place to be in. When we're in that place, we're essentially pitting our own wisdom against God's, asserting that we know what's best for our lives. My hope is that our prayers become less this year about telling God what needs to happen and more about saying along with his son Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. Because God is wiser than me, and if I take it upon myself to inform him about what he should be doing, perhaps then God is just using that kind of prayer to show me more about myself and how I operate than he is to change my circumstances. Research shows that the majority of people pray, and yet most of us feel dissatisfied while we do it. We envy those who seem theologically eloquent or those who seem deeply affectionate in their prayers, and we feel like second-rate citizens when it comes to the act of praying. According to a recent study done in Pew Research in 2020, over 80% of the United States population consider themselves to be spiritual in some way. Over 90% say they pray at least once a month. Praying is a common practice for a lot of us, and yet most of us feel really lost while we're doing it. That's a great place to start. It's a place of humility. And I'd like to give you a template for prayer to give you a little bit more confidence as you enter into your new year. It's probably the best advice I've ever heard personally on prayer. It's simple to remember, and it summarizes a biblical approach to prayer for the followers of Jesus. Keep it simple. Keep it honest. Keep it up. Those three words characterize the kinds of prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. Simplicity, honesty, and perseverance. Keep it simple, keep it honest, and keep it up. But before we open the word and I start talking about prayer, let's first actually pray. That might be a good idea when talking about it, right? So why don't you guys join me as we pray and invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes today. Lord, we don't invite you into a service. You're everywhere at once. We don't command you. We ask you to come, Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our hearts, to help us to understand, to remove the scales and the blinders, and I pray that you would create praying people, Lord that you would create the kind of people, not just in them, but in me, who love to be with you for your own sake. Not for anything we can get from you, Lord, but for who you are. I pray today, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and help us to understand how you've taught your disciples to pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to recommend a resource to you right from the beginning. I don't really recommend Bible reading plans or prayers often, or prayer plans often. Mostly they just make you feel like junk for not doing them, and then it's May 1st and your plan's still back in March, 
Anybody raise a hand there and say, yeah, I've been there? Okay, but I do think you need practical stuff. I'd recommend that you visit prayercourse.org, best website on prayer I've ever, uh, I've ever seen. And I've handed out a lot of resources to you this morning that can help you pray in a number of ways. Uh, they're on the Lord's Prayer, making requests in prayer, and what it means to pray in the Spirit or pray in tongues. I think that's a badly misunderstood thing. There's a lot of confusion about praying in the Spirit, and I, I hope that those resources are a blessing to you and help you exercise a more consistent, educated prayer life so that you begin to see the fruit of that in your own life. I've also included a shorter pictorial outline of how to pray based on the Lord's Prayer. Some of you guys are visual learners, so I, help that, I hope that those little uh, icons help you pray in a productive way. But we're going to start with simplicity this morning. If we're going to keep it simple, keep it honest, and keep it up, we need to not overcomplicate our prayers. Jesus is very interested in helping us pray directly, simply, and without frills. Okay, he's trying to make it accessible so that everyone from the smallest child to the wisest scholar approach God on equal footing. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said towards the end of his life, to this day, I am still nursing myself on the Lord's Prayer, and I'm eating and drinking of it like an old man without getting bored. I've mentioned this before, but when you read the Lord's Prayer, it actually rhymes when you say it in Aramaic, and the same is also true in Hebrew, which is a good sign that Jesus was probably trilingual. Jesus teaches his disciples a song or a poem to help them pray. Do you ever notice how songs get stuck in your head much easier than lines from a book? I swear, I still have the My Little Pony theme song stuck in my head from the early 2000s, seared into my consciousness, and it will not get out no matter what I try. And yet, I can't read what I read for class last week, but that stupid song comes to my head in the shower at random intervals. Anybody ever been there? Well, Jesus taught his disciples more of a song than a prayer. Jesus made it simple. He provided the basics of prayer in the Lord's Prayer, which can be found in Matthew chapter 6. But it's also equally important to remember how Jesus taught us not to pray. And I want you to listen to verses 5 and eight, five to 8 uh, in Matthew 6 to, listen, to learn a little bit about that. It says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. There are two groups that Jesus mentions here, and neither of them are actually praying. The hypocrites that Jesus mentions are Jewish believers who are praying to manipulate other people, to receive admiration. And the Gentiles, or the non-Jewish believers who are praying, are trying to manipulate the divine and get it to do what they want. One is praying to control how other people see them. The other group is thinking to control God through a formula of prayer. Jesus is basically saying, don't pray to be seen by other people, and don't pray to compel God to do things, but instead lock yourself in a room alone so that you can actually be real with God. That's what simple prayer means, by the way. It's simple because you're removing ulterior motives, and you're just being your honest self with God. It's about a relationship, it's not about a transaction. 
You're not trying to impress anyone. You're not trying to figure out the secret formula to get God to take action. You know, us Pentecostals are really good at this. We think if we pray with more intensity, if we pray louder, if we pray often enough with, that makes us hoarse, man, God will answer. You know what? Tibetan uh, Buddhist monks do this too. They think if they, they spin their prayer wheel enough times, it'll pass before the eyes of the bodhisattvas. And if the bodhisattvas see their prayer enough times, then they're, they're compelled to answer. You and I want the formula. We're all subject to those same temptations. So it's important to, ch to, it's important to check our motives and desires when we enter into prayer. Simplicity in prayer is what God wants because it holds no pretense. Its goal is to connect with God, not get something from God or to look good for other people. I think our most effective prayers actually come when they seem to us to be the most pathetic. C.S. Lewis said it this way, what may seem our worst prayers may really be in God's eyes our best. God sometimes seems to speak to us most intimately when he catches us, as it were, off our guard. I can remember when I was 19 years old, I went to a, uh, a, college, a college weekend experience at North Point Bible College, where I eventually did my undergraduate studies. In the chapel service that week, I kept thinking to myself, these people are absolutely nuts. I mean, they, they spoke in tongues, they raised their hands, they were crying all the time. I thought everybody was absolutely unhinged. I, I had no experience with that, so I needed some privacy, so I retreated to this own little private prayer chapel on campus, and I prayed, God, I don't want to be here. These people are crazy, and I don't fit in. That sound like a spiritual prayer from your pastor? <laughs> that was probably the best prayer, though, I could have prayed. In fact, it was the only one I could really manage that day. But when I prayed it, I felt this sense of peace begin to settle over me, and perhaps not with words, but more of an impression that said to me, you're in the right place even though it doesn't feel like it right now. And so I went to that college, and it was one of the best decisions of my life. I'm working here today because I made that decision. I stayed in the ministry because I made that decision. I prayed a simple prayer, and because of that simple decision, I stayed in New England, and I met my wife. And here I am. It's a good decision. But, but it's not a very good prayer. It almost felt irreverent to pray. It felt borderline disrespectful. It, it, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel fancy. It didn't include a Bible verse. There were no quiver feelings. I, I didn't reason my way through it. It was just a simple one-sentence prayer that expressed my concern to God. And yet it gave me the peace to echo the words of Jesus, not my will, your will be done, that he says in Luke 22. You see, that's how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. To pray in private, to pray with the knowledge that God knows what you need more than you do, even if you think otherwise, and to pray without trying to manipulate him or anybody else. That is simple prayer. Keep it simple. Keep it honest and keep it up. Next, let's talk about honesty. Let's take a look at that aspect of prayer. Probably my favorite example of honest prayer comes from a parable in Luke chapter 18. It starts in verse 9 and goes to first verse 14, and it sounds like this. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I once heard someone say that it's our natural tendency to see the worst in others and the best in ourselves. And I don't know if that's true for all of us, but I'm certainly inclined to think that it's true for me. Monica said to me the other day, you are the most patient and gentle man I know, except in traffic. Anyone going slower than me is annoying. Anyone going faster than me is a lunatic. Anyone going the same speed as me is in my way. <laughs> it's harder for me to look at myself and say, Dylan, you're the problem. And that's not just in traffic, despite what my wife might think about me. Honesty with ourselves and with God is hard to come by unless we're intentional about it. Because it's so hard to see, and we are so often blinded by ourselves. That's why David prays it like this in Psalm chapter 19, verses 12 to 13. He, he says, Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, and keep me back also from presumptuous sins? Let them not have dominion over me. He's basically saying, Help me, God. Help me see what's obvious about me and what's hidden about me. Help me see the sins that are right in front of my eyes and the ones that I've swept under the rug. Show me myself. This is the reason many of us have trouble, as Pascal said earlier, sitting alone in a room with ourselves. We would rather endlessly distract ourselves with projects, books, TikTok, Netflix, or pick whatever your preferred narcotic is. It requires not just self-discipline, but humility, honesty, and faith to look at yourself as you actually are, not as you imagine yourself to be. That's where real prayer begins, with honesty. Some of the greatest prayers in human history are prayers of honest repentance. Think of Psalm 51 or Daniel chapter 9, or even the prayer of Manasseh outside the Bible. They're some of the greatest prayers in history. The best prayers are honest prayers because they're not pretending or putting a show on. They're dealing with sin in all of its ugliness and they're not minimizing what's going on. If you've listened to me preach for any amount of time, you know I'm not a big fan of the huge modern buzzword, authenticity. I'm completely in favor of people being who they truly are without receiving judgment from us. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I'm not a fan of people using authenticity as a shield to avoid accountability. You can be authentically a toxic person. You can also authentically be a great person. Authenticity just means you are being true to what you are. As the famous philosopher and head coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, said, it is what it is. Authenticity just means you're being true to what you are. It does not speak to the quality of what that is. And yet the underlying message of our culture is that who you are is unchanging and without fault. That if you're authentic, you are inherently a righteous person. And that's not true. If you're constantly trying to assert yourself rather than assess yourself, perhaps you'll end up sounding like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, whether you are religious or not. All the Pharisee could see 
was how good he was and how bad the other guy was in comparison. His prayer wasn't actually a prayer at all. He's simply talking at God, not talking with God. And in contrast, the tax collector in Luke 18 comes to God and can't even look up at him because he knows the evil that's in his heart. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think at this point, we see the value of honest prayer. It provides something our society, for all its advancements, has failed to do. In our modern quest to abolish shame, we have simultaneously abolished guilt. We've overcompensated in our modern psychological circles, and thus most people outside a faith community like this one have no way of talking about the bad stuff that they do. When people feel ashamed, they say to themselves, I am bad, but guilt says, I did something bad. That's an important distinction that authors like Brene Brown make, and it's one that comes into play in our prayer life. I think that the world is so afraid of shame that they don't want to acknowledge any guilt, and we're worse off because of it. Prayer helps us deal with our guilt, and it gives us a means to be honest with God, with ourselves, and with other people. Modern philosophies have no category for dealing with humanity's moral failures. The reason for the proliferation of things like cancel culture is because we have no grounds to understand people's guilt, let alone grounds to forgive it. So if we rid ourselves of guilt, we rid ourselves of any means of addressing it. If we can avoid doing things that make us feel guilty, we feel self-righteous. And if we do bad things, we can either hide or feel irredeemable. Prayer helps us bring our real self to God, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it. A psychologist in the 1960s by the name of Dr. Hobart Maurer said this, we have cut to the root of human beings by eliminating sin as a category to understand our actions. No wonder so many people feel ashamed, because they don't have a framework to appeal for redemption. Our guilt corrupts us, but God is capable of redeeming us. Outside of God, our guilt corrupts us, and either our own conscience or the mob tears us apart. So it's in our best interest to hide, to never let people know what's going on underneath, never be honest, because it would put us at risk and it's not safe. But the parable in Luke 18 shows us a better way. Honest prayer can liberate you in a way that self-assured authenticity never could. Honesty and authenticity are cousins, but they're not the same thing. You must be real about who you are, but you must take it a step further and realize that you are in need of repentance. You're not infallible, and you can make mistakes. And so in your prayers to God, approach him with humility and also with bravery to face both the good and the bad of who you are. You can't come to God like the Pharisee saying, this is who I am, I'm unchanging, and I'm proud of it. You must come to God like the tax collector recognizing your guilt. And Jesus said in verse 14, that kind of person will go back to their house justified and God will exalt those who humble themselves. So start the new year with honest prayer. Repentance isn't an ugly word, it is a needed one. God doesn't want you to wallow in your sorrow, by the way. Guilt can be self-indulgent, but he does want you to move through your guilt, not avoid it. That's not the same thing as shame. Shame is a dead-end street, but guilt is the road that God paves to his grace and honest prayer is the vehicle that you drive on that road to get to it. Accept what you've done, acknowledge it to God, confess it to someone else, and ask 
for prayer. James 5.16 is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's why the second part of our mission statement is find freedom. We need to be honest about where we're at with other people in order to be liberated from the shackles of sin. Your vices will continue to have a vice grip on you unless you place yourself in the care of other people around you because they provide you with the strength not only to act differently, but to be different. That's why I handed out these prayer bracelets this morning to remind you not just to pray before you act, but to pray together. Our month of January is called Pray First, uh, because each Saturday morning, myself, Pastor Paul, Mary Evelyn, and others will be here in this sanctuary praying from 9 to 10 a.m. Praying with other people is the most powerful form of honest prayer. I would encourage you to come join us and start by confessing your sin. And that may seem really intimidating. If you're nervous about confession, come talk to me. I'm literally bound by the law to not speak. In the Protestant Reformation, they briefly held on to the role of a confessor, which is a Catholic idea. It's a minister who would hear your sins and pray for you. Now, I don't think you need a minister to hear your sins, by the way. I think the Catholic Church got that wrong. However, I think in our church, we've gone completely in the opposite direction, and we think that nobody needs to hear our sins but God. But that is not true. James 5.16 just told us otherwise. Somebody else needs to hear your sins. They need to pray with you, and they need to be the one in whom you might find the grace that you need. You're only as free as you are honest. So be authentic, yes. Be who you really are, but take it a step further and have the bravery to be honest. Tell God and others how you really feel, what you're really afraid of, what you're really angry about. Don't bring the polished you or the perfect you. Bring the version of you that still needs work. We encourage that. Remember that Jesus prayed, take this cup from me, before he had the courage to pray, not my will, but your will be done. It's okay to start where you are, it's just not okay to obstinately remain where you are. That's different. I encourage you to pray along with Jesus. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Keep it simple, keep it honest, and keep it up. Come join us for prayer, and be honest in your prayers to God. Be honest about who you are, what you're going through, where you want to go. Be honest. You know, David prayed in Psalm 55. It's one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. He says, Evening, morning, and noon, I complain and murmur to God, and he will hear my prayer. Now that is an honest kind of prayer. That is a lot of complaining. But God wants the real you, not the ideal you. You have to pray with all your mess, with all your heart, fully showing your real self to God, because he wants you for you. He wants the angry you, the exhausted you, the perplexed you, the unpolished you. He does not want the Pharisee version of you. He wants the tax collector. That's the person he wants to speak with. And if you can humble yourself in that way, which takes a lot of guts, God will hear you. He will exalt those who humble themselves. So pray honestly and come to God with a humble, repentant spirit. Pray simply, pray honestly, pray consistently. Jesus is not only our Lord, but he's also our example. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, uh, we read that Jesus would rise early in the morning, leave his house, and go out to a desolate place to pray. He told his disciples to lock themselves in a room in Matthew chapter 6, but the principle remains the same. Find a place and set it apart for prayer. 
Now, I wouldn't recommend heading outside to a desolate place in the winter of New England, unless you're into that, but if we're not just going to pray simply and honestly, but if we're going to pray consistently, we need to find rhythms in our lives that help us do that. This could be a certain chair in your house in the morning or evening. It could be a corner of the house that rarely is visited or maybe a seldom used room at work during your break. Uh, Celtic Christians in the early centuries of the Christian church had this practice of walking as they prayed, and they would pray at what they called sacred places. And based on their interpretation of the book of Acts, they started to call them thin places because they saw that God's spirit filled the upper room before it filled the people. And so they had an idea of setting places apart for sacred use. It's, a, it's called a thin place because they, they asserted the, the layer between heaven and earth became thin as people began to pray. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 that anywhere from a locked room to a desolate place in the wilderness can become that thin place for you. For me, most of the year, it's a state reservation uh, at a beach near here. I went there last year when it was 17 degrees. I'm one of those crazy people. Uh, I went out there this week. I was there three times with Monica. I love to go there and pray. Uh, Wherever it is for you, it helps to establish a place and just sit there. And if you don't know what to say, then just go there with your Bible in hand or read or pray through the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments or even take those prayer resources I gave you and just sit with God and begin to listen. That's a practical way you can remain consistent in the new year in prayer. Establish a place. But the question might come to some of your mind, why is it important to keep praying? If our Father, as it said in Matthew 6 earlier, knows everything before we ask, why do I have to keep praying? Why don't I just pray once and call it quits? Doesn't God know what I need? What's the significance of remaining consistent in prayer? Why the need to keep praying? Jesus answers this again in in Luke 18. He says in the parable of the persistent widow in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Life is full of unanswered questions, unanswered prayers, and disappointments. Abraham Lincoln once famously said, I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom seemed insufficient for the day. I can't tell you why you pray for something a dozen times and it seems to resolve itself, and other times you're met with absolute silence. I do not know. But I do know that the Lord has instructed us not to quit and to keep praying. Ironically, the word in the Latin Bible for prayer is precarious, where we get the word precarious. Because God knows life, the life we live is filled with so much uncertainty. Our job is to keep facing that uncertainty in prayer. Life is full of mystery, and our faith is not meant to give us complete certainty. It's meant to give us certainty about one thing, or rather one person, and that is Jesus. 
That's what he said in verse 8. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? What if God's silence and ambiguity on something is by design? What if your perseverance and trust is more important to him right now than your understanding? I think God is far more interested in prayer changing us into faithful people than he is in prayer being a way to get what we want. It's interesting that in this parable, Jesus never answers the question why God permitted a widow to suffer, why he let an unrighteous person stay in power, and why the widow had to keep seeking for justice. He never answers it, but he says in verse 1, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they would always pray and not lose heart. So why should you? Because just like a good marriage, anything worthwhile takes time and effort. If I didn't put consistent effort into my new marriage in 20 years, the early feelings would be gone and we'd be roommates. And the same is true with God. In fact, he compares his relationship with you to a marriage. What if God wants to develop people who are steadfastly faithful to him and won't give up no matter what injustice, delay, or disappointment hits their life? What if that is the goal of God's prayer life for you? Because God says this to those who remain faithful to him in John 14, verse 23. Those who obey my commandments, I will manifest myself to them. I will show myself to them. Would you keep praying if you knew that God's promise was to show himself to you? Would you keep praying if you knew that God will never answer your request, but he will give you his companionship and his friendship? Is that enough for you to keep praying? Remember at the beginning of our time together today, I said that God is more interested in you being with him than in you getting stuff from him. In Matthew 6, 32, it says it this way, the Gentiles seek after material things, but seek God first and his kingdom and everything else you need will be added to you. So my question for you stands, if God didn't answer your prayer, would you keep praying anyway? Because maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe what he's doing inside of you supersedes what's going on around you. Perhaps he's making you into the kind of person that the widow was, the kind of person who's faithfully tenacious and won't give up no matter what comes their way. The kind of person who just wants the presence of God above anything that God could give to them. That, in a way, is why prayer is the heart of the Christian faith. It's more than words on a page this, without prayer, is just something that was printed probably in China. This does nothing for you apart from the Holy Spirit enlivening you through prayer, and it makes this come alive. Our songs and our readings are worthless if we do not have connection with God in prayer and avail ourselves of the Father who wants to speak to us in secret and reward us in secret. All of our religious activities mean nothing if we are not connected to the vine. It means communicating with God. It's love. It's connection with the creator of the cosmos, the one who designed you and wrote your days in his book before one of them began. It's being united with God through the suffering of his son and allowing yourself to pray, not my will, God, but I want yours to be done instead. Prayer is the means that unites you with God. It's the thing that sustains you through difficulty. Prayer is the point of your faith. It's a relationship. 
And if you begin to think of prayer as primarily connection instead of requests, then you've begun to understand the heart of God. Keep it simple, keep it honest, and keep it up. If you feel like you're failing in prayer, get up and try again. Alter your schedule just a little bit. Did you know that if you read this for 15 minutes a day that you would get through this in a year? Imagine what 10 minutes of prayer would begin to do inside of you. Imagine if you just prayed 10 minutes before bed each night and asked God to show himself to you. Imagine what would, the, the neurological pathways that not would only, that would begin to be remapped, but also the affections of your heart that would begin to change along with it. Imagine how God might begin to speak to you and guide you and heal you and work miraculous things around you. Imagine that your life would not be trapped where it is and it's all, the water's already hooked up. All you have to do is turn on the nozzle. But prayer is always going to cost you something. It's going to cost you some pain and inconvenience, but it is always worth the price. Otherwise, if we only pray when we feel like it, a pastor once said, then we are subject to our hormones and the weather. When you want to give up, tell God that. Get honest with him. Are you hungry enough for God to begin to seek him? to ask after him, enough to seek him in prayer. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As the worship team comes back, I want to encourage you to make prayer a daily moment in your life. And we're going to make it here a moment today. Little habits have a way of changing our lives in the way that grand plans never will. Have you ever noticed that? It's like a New Year's resolution. You can just start it little by little, or you can imagine where you're, you're going to be in a year, right? Like in a year, I'm going to be 180 pounds of solid muscle, right? Can you picture it? <laughs> Grand plans are only accomplished through little habits. God is not attracted, hear me, God is not attracted by our intensity. He's attracted to our faithfulness, consistency, and tenacity. That is what love is like, that is what faith is like, and that is what prayer should be like. As a husband, I don't want to just be really intense. I want to be faithful. I want to be consistent. I want to be tenacious. And I hope that's what our prayers become this new year. These little habits can change your life more than zeal or passion ever will. I could tell you story after story of what God has done in my life through prayer. I mean, he's led me into ministry. He's sent me to other countries. He's paid off $50,000 of debt in a day. He's saved people around me. He's led me to a spouse. He sustained me under crushing pressure. He's healed my mom and more and more. But more than anything, prayer has brought me to God. That's the kind of intimacy that's worth more than everything else the world can offer. As Jesus says it in Mark 8, what would it profit you to gain everything but lose your soul? You can be sure that God hears you, that he listens to you, that he loves you, and you can be with him in that thin place. Regardless if he works miracles for you or not, I hope you don't give up. If your circumstances remain unchanged, I hope you keep praying because prayer is not a means to an end. Prayer is the enjoyment of God. Mark Batterson, a pastor in Washington, D.C., said it like this, 
prayers are prophecies. They are the best predictors of your spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. And so I pray that your prayers are simple, honest, and persevering. You know, I told you at the beginning of the sermon how I ended up at Bible college, very much against my will. And I've told some of you before, but I didn't really want to stay there. If you've been around really spiritual people long enough, you know that you start to feel pretty unspiritual quick. And I was faced not only with my own inadequacy, but my own sins. And I felt, man, I, was, I had this big plan. I actually remember being in one of Pastor Paul's classes and telling somebody, I'm just going to leave and be a lawyer. I might as well do something good with this ton. And so I had a plan to leave. And I can remember as a last-ditch effort, I went to the prayer chapel again. And I prayed, God, please forgive me, hear me, but I don't think I should be here. I'm out. And I, the last thing I did before I left that prayer chapel was I prayed Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills from where my help comes from, to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. His foot does not move. And in kind of despair, I left that prayer chapel. I didn't feel anything. But I went to a whole all-student body chapel maybe 20 minutes later, sitting right about where Bob is right now, fourth row. And I can remember the speaker just locked eyes with me. And I was like, uh-oh, it's going to happen. Don't worry, Bob, you're safe. But I can remember he looked over, he, he looked at some of the faculty, said, I hope this is okay. He, he was a guest speaker, and he stepped off the platform, didn't know me from anybody. And he laid a hand on my head, and he prayed all of Psalm 121. And he said, the enemy is speaking lies into your mind. And God wants you to know you're in the right place. And that kept me in ministry. It kept me going. But more than any of that, more than keeping me in a college, it let me know that God heard me. Because when your prayers are simple, direct, when they're honest to God, when all your junk's out on the table, and when you just refuse to give up, even when you feel like you don't have an ounce of spirituality in you, those are the prayers that God hears. Because he says, I am near to the broken and contrite of heart. I dwell in the highest heavens, and yet I dwell with those who are lowly. That's what he says in Isaiah. And so you may not feel good today, but what I can be assured of is if you are simple, and if you are honest, and if you refuse, like, with all the tenacity of a bulldog to not give up, then God will hear you. He does not forsake his people. He has never failed. He has always been faithful. And he will continue to be faithful to you if you continue to seek after him and say, I will not leave. I will not give up. If you become like Jacob in Genesis and say, I am not letting go, God, until you bless me, until you speak to me, until you answer me, I am staying right here. That's the kind of faith that God hears because it is not operating under any pretense. It's remaining completely honest with God and it's refusing to throw in the towel. That's what God wants from us.
doesn't want a formula. There's no prayer I can teach you. There's only honest to God faith. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. And as the worship team plays, whether you want to make an altar where you are in your seat, or whether you want to come up here and pray and seek the face of God, God will hear you if you keep it simple, keep it honest, and keep it up. Let's seek the Lord. Thank you again for being with us today. To listen to our messages, follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And go to ne-cc.org for all news, events, and updates. Thank you and God bless.